as we turn our attention to God's Word uh, at this part of, the, of our service, please open your Bibles to um, 1 Samuel chapter 7. And we're going to be looking at the portion that was read this morning, verses 3 through 17. As you turn there, just by way of, of, of recap, when we pick up the story here in chapter 7, Israel is, it's a, it's a mess. Israel is in a bad spot. Um, as we remember from last week, if you were here, um, chapters 3 through this part of 7, through 7 2, um, it, it, it's really a, it's a story of how the Ark of the Covenant travels from place to place without much reverence. And, and therefore, wherever the Ark of the Covenant goes, Yahweh is judging the people um, around the Ark of the Covenant. There's no mediator there. There's no priest. And there's no reverence for this. this um, it's, it's not just a, a box, right? I mean, this is, in the Old Testament, as close as we get to the actual physical presence of Yahweh. Um, in, in one of those chapters, it says that, that this is the place upon which Yahweh is enthroned. So this is his actual place. It's, it's, the, it's the thing around which the entire tabernacle is built. And with curtains and everything to preserve it. And to protect its holiness. And to send the message to people, you can't just roll up on the Ark of the Covenant. Only one person... In the entire nation can, can go to the Ark of the Covenant one time a year, one day a year. The high priest to sprinkle blood on the mercy, the mercy seat, which is the, the plate that covers the Ark with the two angels facing each other on either side. And even that high priest had to have a rope tied around his ankle so that if he went in there in an unworthy way and died, they could pull him out without having to go into the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. So that they would die too. I mean, so there's all of this scripture around the holiness of God. The weight of God's holiness. And, and as we looked at this passage at Holy Cross last week at least, what we really came away with was, left to ourselves, we would like a God with no weight. Left to ourselves, we would like a God with no weight, who just affirms us and helps us and is responsive to us. The way that the Israelites treated the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, we're getting beaten by the uh, Philistines. Call for the Ark. Have God come and, and fix this for us. And then we can just go back to living how we want. And so we see through the course of those chapters that, that God is not willing to play that role. God is not going to lay aside his glory or translated in another way, his weight. God is not going to lay aside his weight so that we can worship him how we want. So, as we come to this passage, the Ark of the Covenant has gone from where it was resting in Israel, and then it was captured by the Philistines, and then it was returned to Israel. But even then, 70 people went up to it and looked into it, and those 70 people were killed such that at the end of this section, as we pick up here this morning, it closes with this question, which organizes that whole section previous. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? 
So we pick up this story with a quandary, with a tension. God has rescued his people from Egypt and established them, and and he wants to be the central figure in their lives. He's organized all the camps like spokes to go around Israel, right, when they were going through the desert. He, He wants to be in the midst of his people, and he's assigned all of these different feasts and all these different sacrifices in this entire system so that his people can come to him and worship him, so they can come and have their sins covered. And, and have re, uh, fellowship with him. This is what the Old Testament is arranging. This is what we're seeing of God. Yet, yet we have this tension. God is holy and his people can be flippant at times or forgetful of his holiness or negligent. So that's where we pick up here. These people in the time of the judges who have long since lost their moorings with the holiness of God, or even understanding of how to worship him at all. It's probably out of, in good faith, ignorance that a lot of these things happened in the previous section. So as we pick up here this morning, we're going to look at a couple of things in particular. And they they organize easily the way that this narrative is is arranged. So verses 3 and 4 is going to be the thing that we look at first. And, and then we'll look at the next paragraph, verses 5 through 11. And then we'll close with some thoughts there on the last paragraph. So verses 3 and 4. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel who are in this fix, how are we going to rekindle our attachment to, to God? So Samuel says to them, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. It's a beautiful picture here of, of someone, Samuel, anointed by God, standing up and saying, well, here's the first thing that needs to happen. Here's the first very practical thing that needs to happen. And I think that we could summarize it this way in terms of what Israel did and what God is still calling you and I to do on a constant basis. Bring yourself honestly to God. You have to bring yourself honestly to God. And and by that, Samuel here is saying, don't come to God saying, will you please fix this? Will you please fix the crashed car? But, 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 but in your pocket, you've still got the booze, right, that, that led to the car crash in the first place. He's saying, look, if you want to come to God and ask him to intervene and help you and deliver you and get you out of the stranglehold that the Philistines have you in, you need to get rid of this stuff. You need to get rid of these bales and these Ashtaroth. And these are particular affronts to God. We don't have time to go into both. Let's talk about the Ashtaroth. The Ashtaroth is a fertility god. So it's a way for Israel to kind of hedge their bets. We know that Yahweh, who rescued us out of, out of Egypt and established us here, he's like a husband to us. He's going to take care of us. He promises to take care of us. And in my head, I believe that. But... There's this other God, this other fertility God, this Ashtaroth, that a lot of people use, and it seems to work well for them too. And so we're going to use that as well. 
So we're going to also pray and do sacrifices, which were grotesque, to this Ashtaroth God so that we have double secret good crops. We want to faithfully pray to Yahweh, so to speak, but we also want to faithfully pray to this Ashtaroth. We can do both. The problem with that, I mean, it's pretty obvious, but, but to get specific, in the book of Leviticus, there's a, there's a whole section on, on these feasts that God sets up for his people. And the reason for these feasts is, I like to see them as speed bumps. They're, they're, if you've got the whole, church, the whole calendar and, and you're doing your thing, God sets up these periodic uh, speed bumps. So his people have to slow down and kind of take stock of a particular aspect of God's provision and care. And this uh, feast, there's one feast that has to do with fertility. God wants his people to slow down and recognize and worship him as the one who provides everything that they need. And so there's this day of the first fruits, this feast of the first fruits. So the very first sheaf that's harvested, it gets brought to the, to the, to the tabernacle and the priest waves it around and then they make a, um, an offering of uh, wine and bread. Interesting, right? Um, and then, and then there's, a, there's a sacrifice that's made, a, an unblemished male uh, lamb or goat that's one year old. And that starts a countdown, a 49-day countdown to a big feast called Shavuot. I probably pronounced that wrong, but, but, or Shavuot. But there's this big feast that celebrates the harvest and the, 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 the bringing in of all this, this produce. And it's an opportunity for Israel, when things are going really well, to, to recognize, God, it's because of you that we have all this grain. It's because of you that we've had rain and, and strength and stamina to, to go and harvest all this food. Thank you. I say that to say there's a particular way here where God has spoken through Moses and said every year, every time the crops come in, there wasn't like a every two-week direct deposit back then. Like that's not how people got paid. People got paid at harvest time once or twice a year. So this is when all the money comes in. And so when all the money comes in, I want you all to stop, and I want you to come to me, and I want you to bring this offering, and I want you to celebrate. I want you to be joyful. This is one of the really happy feasts. There's one day of fasting leading up to it, but this is a really happy feast recognizing that God is taking care of his people. So God has claimed that. So you can imagine it's a particular affront to God that his people are having these other celebrations, these other joyful feasts around these Ashtaroths that really center around a lot of immorality because it's fertility stuff. So that's what's going on. So Samuel is saying, if you want to come to God and ask for help, here's the first thing that you need to do. And here's the first thing that we need to do. Come, bring yourself to God honestly. Bring yourself to God honestly with open hands. Say, Lord, I really do need your help. I really do want to serve you. I really do want to invite you in to my anxiety or into my mess or, or into this season where I, I, I always need your help. But perhaps for some of us, you're particularly feeling his help right now. Or maybe in a month you will be. So remember what Samuel says. Bring yourself 
honestly to God. Put away these foreign gods in Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart, your heart to the Lord and serve him only. So that's the first thing that we see. But then the second thing that we see in verses 5 through 11 is we see that <clears throat> we don't only need to bring ourselves honestly to God, we need someone to mediate for us. This is something else amazing that God is building into the consciousness of his people way back here in the time of the judges. They can't just bring themselves honestly to God and expect that it's going to go well. There's another element here that God brings in, and it's this figure of Samuel who's going to mediate for the people. So look at what happens. Samuel says, gather all Israel, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So he's standing between Israel and God, praying to God for Israel, on behalf of Israel. That's the image. So they did. They gathered at Mizpah, and they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. As we read through this again, you're going to hear some more of that first point as well. You're going to hear more color about how they brought themselves honestly to God and see some of their humility. They poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah, which just means that he applied the word of God to them, to their, to their disputes or whatever. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. Oh, good. They're all in one place. Let's go get them. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. And, Samuel, and as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. So we see a few things here to point out. The first thing is, Samuel gathers Israel together. Everybody. And Boaz and Ruth might have been here. So they're the grandfather of Jesse, who's the father of David, right? So the, Jesse, we don't know how old he is at this point. He might be, you know, in his 30s or 40s. We don't know. Um, he's got some older kids, so he's probably in his 40s maybe early 50s, but Eli died when he was in his mid-90s. This is not in the Bible. I'm just saying. Ruth and Boaz were good people from what we see, right? They might have been here, the good and the bad, everyone. All of Israel is gathered together because all of Israel needs to bring themselves to God. All of Israel needs a mediator. You need a mediator. I need a mediator. Our self-assessment doesn't get us around this fact. All of Israel gathers here so that Samuel can pray for them. So the first thing is that he gathers them. And then the second thing is he prays for them. But there's this, <clears throat> a couple of times, this word that's put in there that's interesting, without ceasing. So Samuel is all the way back here in the time of the judges, set up as this mediator who never stops praying. And he really does. He's just a man. He does stop praying. But it helps us, doesn't it? It helps us to get our minds around someone who's going to come later, who really won't ever slumber or sleep, who really will always pray for you without ceasing. So here we have Samuel 
who's asked, do not cease to pray. And then he continued to cry out to the Lord. So we have this mediator who gathers the people. He's continuously praying for them. And he offers a sacrifice on their behalf. And then we, this, it's punctuated by the fact that the Lord, who's been destroying people, even his own people, because of their flippancy, as his people come honestly to him, and as this mediator carries them to God and prays for them, God's response is different. He thunders against the Philistines and he delivers them. It works. And finally, as we come to this next section, verses 12 to 14, we see Samuel do something interesting, something that we don't do today so much. We kind of do. If you go to Washington, D.C., you'll see some things like this. Samuel took a stone after this, after this battle. He took a stone and he set it up between Mizpah and Shen. And he called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. And the Philistines were subdued, and Shalom returns to the land. There's even peace between Israel and the Philistines. So we see there's bringing ourselves honestly to God, and we see our need for a mediator, but then we see this interesting twist at the end that those things are kind of sealed as permanent, ongoing things that Israel's going to do. Every time they walk past this stone, they're going to remember it went well for us when we brought ourselves honestly to God. It went well for us when Samuel prayed that God would have mercy on us and he offered a sacrifice. It went well for us when we remembered and revered the weight of God compared to how it had gone for us right up to that point. And it's almost like God gives them a fresh start. Up until now, the Lord has been our helper. Up until now, the Lord has been our helper. So you can imagine generation after generation walking past that stone and remembering. Not even generation after generation. Just day after day as people are going back and forth between these towns. Their morning commute. They see this stone and they remember what it means. God uses passages like this in the Old Testament not just to tell us a story, an historic factual story, which it is. But, but God here is, he's preparing us to receive his ultimate good news. This is a good news story. And this is a great ending to a really bad few months for Israel. But, but he's doing something else for you and for me. He's helping us to receive and appreciate and understand and relate to Christ, the ultimate judge of God's people, the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate priest. The good news of Jesus is he embodies everything that we've just read. He's the one who gathers all of us together. If the Son of Man is lifted up, I will gather all people to myself, people who are near and people who are far off. Every tribe and tongue and nation, everyone can come with equal access to me as I'm lifted up. So he gathers us. He also prays for us. He intercedes for us. He embodies the sacrifice that God accepts on behalf of others to cover their sins. 
And even better, as the writer of Hebrews says, to remove their sins. The, the, the blood of the bulls and goats could temporarily cover the sins of Israel, but the blood of Christ removes them once and for all, heals them. It's not just that we go to God repeatedly asking for a fresh layer of gauze over the wound that never heals, but now at least it's clean and white and we can go to God right now. But then it's going to seep through again and we're going to need it redressed. The writer of Hebrews says, no, no, the blood of Christ is actually going to heal that and remove the sin once and for all. Where this leaves us is how, how do we mirror the the end of this story and and the application of this story, the way that this stone did, the way that this stone gets set up at the end is, is a way for Samuel to say, Israel, remember how it went for you on this day compared to the other days. Remember how you need to continually be coming to God in order for him to continue to help you. How does that map onto our lives? I think we could go to a few different places here but I think that the one that stands out the most is in Hebrews chapter 4, where we see another memorial, another stone, so to speak, that's established forever. And it's called by the writer of Hebrews, the throne of grace. It's the place where Jesus sits all the time. It's the place that, that we can always direct our gaze. In fact, the writer of Hebrews later in chapter 12 will say, run this race with endurance, uh, casting off every sin in, that so easily entangles, uh, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. We're invited to constantly fix our eyes on this figure, on this Christ, who's sitting on a stone, on a throne, a throne that's called the throne of grace, where the mercy of God constantly flows and where the grace of God constantly flows to us. God didn't want his people to soon forget what he had done for them, and how they were kept at peace with him. And, and the writer of Hebrews, facing a, writing to a people who were almost drifting into some of the same ways. It's called syncretism. Yes, we affirm all of these things, but we're also going to do these things as well. That's exactly the context of the writer of Hebrews. Or I'm sorry, the letter of, of Hebrews. So let me read this section. Since then we have... A great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The language there in the last verse, let us then with confidence keep on drawing near to the throne of grace, that we may keep on receiving mercy and keep on finding grace to help in time of need. Just like for Israel, this wasn't a once and done. This was the inauguration of a rekindled relationship with God. And God is calling you and me constantly to come to this throne of grace, to recognize that whether it's a good day or a good week for me or a really lousy day or a really lousy week or a really lousy quarter for me, that, that I am, just as Drew said at the very beginning with the light being on, God is always calling me to come to the throne of grace. He's saying, Keith, I understand you need mercy. Come, let's talk about it. 
you're going to get mercy. And you're going to get grace to help you right now. The first instinct for us, oftentimes, if we know that we need mercy, is to kind of procrastinate. To kind of say, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to restart that conversation with God when I don't need quite as much mercy. I'm going to pay this down a little bit so that I can come to him in good faith and say, look, I just kind of need a little bit of help or I just need, I just need you to co-sign this. But I think I've got it straight. That's the opposite thing that, that Christ invites us to do. In fact, if that's really the case, I don't need mercy. I just need a fist bump, right? I just need him to say, yeah, you're pretty good. Um, I'm going to go help people that really need help. The relationship is grounded on the fact that I constantly need mercy and I constantly need help. And God is inviting me to constantly come and receive those things from him. Just as Israel was invited to constantly put their mind on that stone, or put their eyes on it and think, we just need to keep bringing ourselves honestly before God. And if, and if we've collected a few little um, Ash Taras, or if we're carrying some stuff around, we're going to look at that stone and we're going to be compelled to come to God and, and talk to him about it and say, I'm sorry I did this again. Here they are. I'm going to drop them right here and, 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 and seek prayer. As we continue to worship Christ, let's use our imaginations, even as we come to the table now, let's use our imaginations and see Christ where he is. And take it even a step further. See Christ doing what he's doing. Right now, Christ is doing something for you. The risen, living Christ at the right hand of God is before God all the time with his wounds showing on your behalf. The sacrifice that will always satisfy God. The sacrifice who, who sees you all the time and is always securing mercy and grace for you. So as we come to, to the table now and as we continue to worship, let's imagine Christ, let's see him with eyes of faith as alive and as doing this work of priest for you and for me all the time. And let's never neglect to come to him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.